morning to all of you. Uh, for those of you who might not know it, my name is Thomas. I'm one of the pastors here with Christ Redeemer Church. And uh, as I've had the chance to preach lately, we have been uh, beginning to move through the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're going to go ahead and keep doing that this morning. We're going to finish out, hopefully, chapter 2. And so if you've got your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and open those up to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And we will read from there in just a couple minutes. If you happen not to have a Bible with you, you can raise your hand. Um, Mike, one of our ushers, will make sure you get a Bible. And actually, if you want to take that Bible home with you, you're welcome to do that as well. So we'll read from uh, there in just a few minutes. Um, but let me start to say that um, I have, uh, I've emphasized now in past sermons that a major theme that's running throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is, is that of vanity or the, the futility of life, we could say. And really the futility of all futility, the, the greatest of all futility is death. It's the fact that we all die. Every one of us, no matter who we are, no matter what we do or don't do, we will all die. Death is a great equalizer of all of humanity. And we're going to see in what we'll read today that the writer here is, is very much feeling stress or feeling the stress of this futility, namely this reality of death. And uh, this is going to press on him and it's going to press out of him uh, confusion and, and frustration and despair. Uh, but then he's going to make a turn, okay? And he's going to turn, really for the first time uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, he's going he's to step out from under this, quote, under the sun uh, perspective, the secular perspective uh, that I've talked about in the past and that he's really been uh, looking through to this point in the book. And that's just by way of reminder, that's that perspective that I've mentioned. Um, uh, again, quote, under the sun, as we see in the book. And this, is, this perspective is essentially secular. Okay, not in the sense that, um, that God does not exist, but in the sense that God is not accounted for. Uh, so, uh, God, his character, his plans, his priorities, none of that is really deeply considered from this under-the-sun perspective. And uh, at the end of the chapter here, in chapter 2, the writer is going to step out from under the sun, we could say, and step out from under that secular view, and he is going to uh, offer up some advice for us, some counsel from that newer perspective. So we all die, and so relatively speaking, our days are few, they're fleeting. How should we live this, how should we live in light of that, this, this short, brief life that we have? What do we do with our time? That's the million-dollar question. And at the end of chapter 2, the writer is going to give us an answer. Um, back in uh, the beginning of the summer, my daughter Kirka, uh, along with my wonderful wife, they were out uh, looking for inchworms. She was hoping to find an inchworm. They had seen uh, inchworms out before on walks and out in the yard, and so Kirka wanted to go out. She was hoping to find one. And so Kirka went out and she looked, and uh, no inchworm. Didn't find an inchworm. She, she, she came up short. But she did find a little stick. 
She found a little stick. And at some point, um, don't remember exactly how things transpired, but at some point, Karina and Kirka came back into the house and Kirka was trying to give me the details of this search of hers. And uh, at some point, she just kind of blurted out this prayer of thanks. And uh, she had this cute smile on her face and she just said, thank you for giving us a stick that looks like an inchworm. And, I mean, melt your heart. And uh, I thought, wow, that, that, no inchworm, but a stick that looks like an inchworm. And that made her happy. She was perfectly happy with that. And uh, I think that's so good. I think that's such a good perspective. And frankly, that is the counsel that we're going to get here at the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. It's basically that, that we would know that God is sovereign and he's generous in our circumstances. And so get on with living and enjoy God's daily provisions. It's that we would choose to see and be grateful for and find enjoyment in the good that is around us, knowing, again, that God is in control and God is generous, and that he will, in fact, provide everything that is necessary for us. And, uh, That's really the take-home message for us today. So if you forget everything else I say, uh, remember that. God is sovereign, and God is generous, and so get on with life and enjoy uh, God's daily provision. Now, uh, I think that there are uh, three parts to this overall passage that we're going to look at today, and and really each one of these could easily... uh, uh, Um, require a sermon in themselves, but for the sake of this message today, uh, just kind of in keeping with the pace of what I'm trying to move through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, for the sake of the message today, I just want to skim through the first couple parts of this chunk that we'll look at, and and I want to I want to see what I think are some helpful observations in the first couple parts of it, and then we're going to land with the writer's counsel there at the end of chapter 2, okay? So, so that said, uh, let's read, and then, we'll, and then we'll move on. But before that, please pray with me again. Lord, thank you for the opportunity that we have to be together again, and uh, I, I, I pray that you would you'd simply open us to hear from you right now. Uh, clear distractions from our mind, open our hearts, help us to hear from you now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to look at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 12, all the way down to the end of the chapter. Okay, so starting at verse 12. So I turn to consider uh, wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. And then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under heaven was grievous to me. For all is vanity and striving after the wind. 
I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, uh, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. And this also is vanity. And so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person... Uh, who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill, must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There's There's nothing better for a person... And that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases God, uh, pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Okay, so the first section here of this reading in front of us, I think, is at uh, verses 12 through verse 17. And uh, as he says there, the writer is going to consider wisdom itself. And he wants to know, is there any value in wisdom? Or is it just as futile as so many of the other things that he's already considered? And basically, he realizes that, yeah, there is some value in wisdom. Uh, He sees that his wisdom is, relatively speaking, better than being a fool. I mean, having wisdom is, in fact, better than not having it, in the same way that having light, in most cases, is much better than than not having light. Uh, So, you know, you think if we actually want to see something, it's much better that we have light uh, than if we would have uh, darkness. That's rather obvious. And so at this point, yeah, there's a, there's a partial answer. Wisdom is relatively valuable. So far, so good. But then we see the writer give way to frustration and despair in light of a much bigger picture. And so he sees in verse 14 that the same event happens to all of them. In other words, death comes to us all. And, and, uh, and he understands that he personally will die. Death comes to everyone, whether you're wise or you're a fool. And that really unsettles him. Verse 15, uh, if this is the case, he's thinking, then why on earth have I even been so wise? I mean, what is the point here? And then despair. Verse 17, he says there, I hated life. I hated life. And it's helpful to note here, I think, why? Why is the writer getting so bent out of shape here? Why, when he faces the thought of death, does he despair of life? And the answer, I think, is rooted in verse 16. So there it says, For the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. So the writer is concerned that that for all of his wisdom and for all of his accomplishments by wisdom, he won't be remembered. And, And that's a problem to him because... Really because of what's underneath that sentiment. What's going on in his heart and and his mind. And for him, the idea of being remembered would have carried with it the idea of having value. Of being worth being remembered. 
And I think we can get that, right? We can understand that. We certainly, uh, we want to be thought of. We want to be considered. We, wanna, we want people to account for us. We want people to think that we're worthwhile. And, and we want to be remembered as being uh, worthwhile. And in the writer's case, his concern, I think, is probably that he'd especially be remembered as a wise man. A wise man who has achieved great things uh, by his wisdom, through that wisdom. And I think that that scratches at a, at a basic question then for all of us. And that is to, to whether or not we feel like we matter. I mean, do our lives matter? If nobody thinks about us, if nobody remembers us, do we really matter? And, uh, and we need to be careful here because I think uh, very often we can be tempted to, to attach our sense of identity or our sense of self-worth or significance to whether or not we are thought of or, or, or how we are thought of by others, um, how we're remembered by others. And so others, in a way, really control our sense of self-worth. Will people remember us? What, what will they remember us for? And I think the answer to those kinds of questions for us often reveals, or, or when we, we would say, what do we want to be remembered for? That answer often reveals, I think, the source or the person, the thing to which we are attaching our sense of self-worth or significance. And I think the writer is feeling this. This is his experience as he's bumping up against the reality of death. Maybe he won't be remembered. Maybe he won't be thought uh, to have mattered really that much. And I think that frustrates him and that pushes him to despair. So he says, I hated life. And uh, I think there's a caution flag there for us. It's the caution flag waving over that for us. And, and it's just to say, you know, let's be careful about from what or from whom we are drawing our sense of self-worth. To what or to whom are you looking today, right now, for that sense of your worth, your sense of your value? Is it in your wisdom? Is it in your education, the degree that you might have, the job that you might have? Is it in the family that you're a part of? Is it, is it, uh, is it maybe that you're really socially active, um, really working for social justice? I mean, what do you want to be remembered for? And, uh, and what if you're not remembered for that? How does that make you feel to think about that you would not be remembered for, for this thing? Um, Paul Tripp says, Why are we discouraged? Why are we depressed? Why are we disappointed? Paul Tripp says, At the most basic of levels, it's because we've tried to find an identity in a fallen world. And he says that many of us have our identity wrapped up in something other than the Creator, other than God. And because the creation, that is everything that's not God, because the creation was never designed to carry the weight of defining us, well, then at some point our misplaced identity dreams will crumble. Okay, so we've got to be careful about about sourcing our sense of worth in anything or anyone other than our Creator. Because anything other than our Creator is simply not designed to bear that burden. And it is temporary. It's temporary. And so it's going to pass. 
And with it, then, is going to pass any grounding for our value. And at this point, I would say that the writer of Ecclesiastes here fits that concern for uh, Paul Tripp. Because at this point, he's still not accounting for God in, in any sense of his being remembered or self-worth. And so then the only alternative, if not God, is created things. And so basically, man, he, he's destined to despair. He's destined for it because finite created people and things were not designed to bear that burden of giving us our, our self-worth, our value. Um, and that should serve again as a caution flag for all of us, careful about looking to anything but our creator himself as that really root cause of, or that rather that root source of our sense of worth. And in, and in his case here, the writer again, for example, I think he's writing a lot. He, he's tying his, his worth, his value to people's opinion of him. Uh, will I be remembered? Um, I think. And, and, and this is related closely then to the next section, verses 18 to 23. Um, there the writer goes on to say that he hates his toil. He hates life. Now he says, I hate my toil. Meaning, I think, in context, uh, not just his actual work in and of itself, uh, but really more the fruit of his work. In other words, his possessions. And so the, the NASB translation at verse 18 then, for example, says... Uh, Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. I think that, really, that, that gets more at the heart of, of it for the writer. And he says, I hated all of this. Why? Why again? So an- another good question. Why is he so bent out of shape here in this case? And I think the answer to that uh, is rooted in verses 18 to 19. And so verse 8, or the end of verse 18 again, moving into verse 19, it says there, I must leave it, meaning his, 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 uh, his possessions, the fruit of his labor. I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. And so he considers death again. He's bumping up against this reality of death. And uh, what's going to come after it? And his reaction is to despair. And at the heart of that, I think, again, are issues related to self-worth and significance. And I think the writer, I think he felt a sense of, um, of, of status connected and power connected to his wisdom, to his position. Uh, uh, I think he attached worth to his many possessions here. Um, but he also had some other issues. I think he also had entitlement issues. He also had control issues. Uh, I mean, he felt like he worked for all of this. He earned it. It's his. He owns it. And so he will be the master of it. It's his. And it just drives him nuts, I think, to, to think that or to realize that ultimately, because of death, he really has no control over his possessions. He simply can't keep them forever. Death could snatch them away. Literally at any moment, death could snatch them away. And then he must, he has no control, he must leave them to someone who will come after him. Someone else who will now take control over his things. And, and that just drives him crazy, I think, when he thinks about that. And, and, and here too, I think we can understand that. Um, we can feel that, I think. We can, you, you know, just imagine, you know, after your... your uh, 
your week's worth of work or your month or your, your year, whatever it is, and uh, instead of handing you your paycheck uh, back when they would do that rather than putting it in your bank account directly, but whether, you know, uh, hand you your paycheck, instead of doing that, they say, I'm actually going to give this to this guy over here. Oh, and you, I mean, you worked for this, you earned this, but you get nothing. That, that's the feel of the writer here, I think, in this section. And that drives him crazy, and I, I think we can understand that. Because he really feels that he deserves this stuff. He worked for it, he deserves it, he owns it, and if he owns it, well, then he should be the master of it. He should be able to do with it what he pleases. But death looks at him in the face and says, nope. I'll take that, thank you very much, and I'm going to give it here, there, or some other place. Death says, sorry, you are not nearly in as much control as you think you are. You are not nearly in as much control as you think you are. And so there's a caution there for us. Got to be careful about value or the value that we would place in what we've achieved, what we've accumulated, or... or, uh, where we place our value, do we, do we place it in our sense of control that we might have? Um, is there an inordinate amount of satisfaction in our possessions or attachment to our possessions? Like if you, if you lost this thing, whatever it might be, then you really can't figure out how can I even be happy? If I don't have this thing, I, I won't be happy. Do we have an attachment to our possessions in that way? Um, you know, and that could be a material thing. That could be a person, a relationship. It could be something like knowledge or wisdom. And the writer here, man, he, he merely thought about losing his possessions and he gave up to despair. He hadn't even lost them yet. And he, he just thought about it and he despaired. I mean, this guy is holding on way too tight. And so where are we at with our possessions? How are we dealing with our possessions in light of that. Maybe the, the, the as maybe this cliche uh, question goes, do we have our things or do our things have us? Are we holding our things with a, with a clenched fist or are we holding our things with an open hand? The fact is that, we, we, that, that if we do clamp down on our uh, things with closed, clenched fists, And if we attach our sense of happiness to those things or our sense of self-worth to those things or control to those temporary things, then our happiness and our sense of worth, any sense of control that we have, by definition, can only be temporary. If if the thing that sources our sense of worth or, or happiness or control or whatever, if that thing is temporary, then all the happiness or, or worth or, or control that we might get from it is by definition temporary. It soon will uh, be gone. And uh, with it, it will carry uh, any sense of, of value or control that we think we might have. And so the writer can only despair then in the end. It makes sense that he would despair because he's not considering these things from anything but a secular perspective. This this quote, under the sun perspective. But in the next section, uh, verses 24 to 26, he turns a corner there. He turns a corner there. So here, here in this uh, part of the, the chapter, the writer really does uh, turn a corner, and now 
in essence, he's going to step out from that under the sun perspective that we, we could say, and he's going to look up to see things uh, with, with God very much in mind. God very much uh, accounted for. And then in light of that, uh, the writer is now going to offer us some advice. What do we do? In light of all of the futility that he's talked about in, the, in, in all of chapter 1 and chapter 2, what do we do? And his answer really is a matter of perspective. It's a matter of perspective. Uh, verses 24 to 25 again. He says, There's nothing better for a person than, than, than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So this is a very different perspective than the, the, the secular under the sun view. And, and the, the advice is this. It's acknowledge that God is not absent. Uh, acknowledge that God is very much present. And he is sovereign. And he is generous. And so, eat and drink. In other words, get on with life. Live your life and enjoy your work. Or by extension and implication, the fruits of your work, the fruits of your labor, your possessions. Really, seize the day. Go after it. Make the most of every opportunity. Notice what is good. Choose to see what's good in your circumstances and focus on that. And receive that as the gift from God that it is. Thanks for the, the stick that looks like uh, an inchworm, we might think. It's, it's, it's that kind of a childlike attitude, actually, I think, that, he's, that, that is at the heart of this. I think that's the simple, straightforward advice. Know that God is sovereign and he's generous and get on with life. Make the most of it and enjoy your possessions, knowing that it's all God's gift to you. It's all gift to you. That's the advice, and the writer is actually going to repeat himself. He really means this. He's going to repeat himself and say basically the same thing five or six more times in the remaining uh, parts of the book, in the remaining ten chapters. And, uh, and so he's on to something, something here. He's, he's, uh, he's really, um, this is really going to become a, a major theme in the rest of Ecclesiastes. And so we're definitely going to touch more on this uh, as we continue to move through Ecclesiastes. But for now, um, what this essentially means is um, it's not to say that we would just go out and we'd make it our, jo- our goal to just pursue enjoyment, pursue fun wherever we can find it. Let's just go do it. Let's just go get happiness for happiness' sake. Okay? Um, uh, it's not that we would that we just say, well, you know, heck with it. The world is full of futility, so let's just... Uh, grab life by the horns and let's have as much fun as we can because we're going to die, so let's go after it. No, he, he tried that already. That was, that was the early part of chapter 2. We talked about that last week, and it doesn't work for various reasons. So that's not what he's saying here. But essentially what he is saying is that we should, cho- that we should see the good that is around us. Um, so actually the ESV text note in verse 24 um, it, it, it referring to this, um, or connected to the phrase, find enjoyment. Okay, it offers this alternative, alternate uh, reading and says it could be translated, quote, to make his soul see good. See the good around us. 
Look for it. See it. Focus on it. Receive it as God's gift in the course of our daily lives. And I think that that is intended then by God to produce in us satisfaction, enjoyment, contentment. Um, Our work and our possessions, these things really are gifts to us. Um, And I think in verse 26, um, that is, that I think can be a confusing verse. So let me just comment on it. I think in verse 26, it's basically just saying that the one who pleases God is the, the one in the vein of, uh, who thinks in the vein of verses 24 to 25. Um, so these things are gifts to us. Specifically, they're gifts for those who please God. That's the language of verse 26. Versus one who is a sinner, again, in the language of verse 26. And again, I think this one who, who pleases God is basically the one who thinks, who views the world, and who acts according to verses 24 to 25. He's the one who acknowledges God's presence, acknowledges his sovereignty and his generosity in his daily life, and he's grateful for that. And he uses those gifts accordingly, as if they're gifts rather than things that we have earned. So he, he uses them not as an owner, uh, who might get really frustrated when he loses them, but as a steward. He, 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 he um, uses them as a steward who's been given in a, something entrusted to him. And uh, that view of things is what pleases God. Outside of that view, in this, quote, under the sun, secular thinking, well, then life really is futile. I mean, in its basic definition. It really is uh, pointless. It actually is, apart from God, life simply is this, you know, 90 years or so of, of just collecting and gathering throughout life, all to be just lost in the end. And that's it. There's, and there's not much point to it when all is said and done. And I think verse 26 is essentially re, re, reiterating uh, that point. Uh, but again, the, uh, the, the, the take-home message here, the counsel for us, is verse 24 to 25. Acknowledge that God is sovereign and generous. And in light of that, eat and drink. Get on with Life, live life, and find enjoyment in the fruits of your labors. Choose to see what's good. Be grateful for it. Um, and enjoy it as the gift that it is, a gift from God. Um, that's the basic counsel here. And I, think, and I think it's very much reflected and filled out more still in the, in the New Testament. And, um, and as the series continues, I, I, I want to flesh that out more as to how this is built up in the New Testament in light of Jesus. Um, but even here today, 1 Timothy 4.4 4 says, Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 says that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Uh, Philippians 4 says, Think about these things. Whatever is true, Whatever is honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable, excellent. Is there anything worthy of praise? So any of that stuff in your circumstances, there's something there that's pure. There's something there that's lovely. There's something there that's honorable. Something. There's something worthy of praise. 
Paul in Philippians 4 would say, think on these things. And that is a path to peace, to contentment, to enjoyment. So choose to focus on what's good in every circumstance. Receive it as God's gift. Enjoy it in that light, knowing that God is in control and that God is generous and that he will provide literally everything that is necessary for us to live a life that is pleasing to him. In fact, uh, just be reminded of that again. It's a great truth from 2 Peter 1 verse 3. It says there that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so we, we truly do have everything that we need to live a life that is pleasing to God. And a life pleasing to God brings with it joy, brings with it contentment, wisdom, knowledge, and, and, and so on. And every ounce of all that we need flows to us through Jesus, through faith in Jesus. Galatians 3.26 says that in Christ Jesus, we are sons of God through faith. We're children of God through Christ. First uh, John 1.12 says, to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so we are pleasing to God. We are, or we have God's favor. God remembers us. No fear of people not remembering us. God remembers us. We're valuable to him. We have God's fatherly provisions because of Jesus, through faith in Jesus. And then mindful of that, our grip should begin to loosen up a bit on our possessions. Should begin to be held more with open hands rather than clenched fists. And, and then rather than working to control our possessions and, get, and freak out when we lose them, maybe we would start to actually start giving our possessions away uh, as a good steward of the things that God has given us. And as we understand more and more deeply that all that we have really is a gift from God, well, then that means that, in fact, we are remembered. If God is giving us things, clearly he remembers us. Clearly he's thinking about us. Clearly we have some worth to him. And, uh, in fact, we do have worth. And, but that worth is, is, is not attached to our things. It's attached to God who gives us this. this God who says, you're worthy. God says, I, I think you're valuable. And our, and our sense of self-worth is, is attached to that because uh, we have that uh, from God through Christ. And, um, and, and, and we, we, that can be evidenced to us, not completely, but in part, again, by the fact that we are given provision, that we have daily provision. That should show us in part that I, God, God is remembering me. God favors me. And, uh, and rather than fretting over the prospect of, of, of maybe losing those possessions or those provisions that he gives us, uh, again, maybe we begin to choose to give them away. And, and, and we see that, man, it really is true. As Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than receive. I think the more that we do that, the more we'll see that that's true. In fact, uh, that, that there is more happiness, there is more enjoyment in, in, in holding things loosely and giving them away. There's more happiness to be found in giving than there is in receiving. Um, 
And we start to think about our, our uh, possessions more as, again, not as owners who need to control these things, but as stewards that are happy to do with them whatever our master, Jesus, would have us to do. Now, I've said that, um, you know, when the writer turns this corner to, uh, in verse 24, and he acknowledges God and he commends uh, eating and drinking and, and enjoying life, he, he broaches this major theme now that's going to carry through the remaining chapters of Ecclesiastes. And so we are definitely going to touch more uh, deeply on this in the months ahead. Man, just barely scratching the surface of that this morning. Um, and that's good because there's a lot more that, that can be said about it, and I look forward to, to, uh, to uh, sermons related to that. But for now, uh, the chapter leaves us in a, in a good place. Um, acknowledge that God is sovereign and generous, and eat and drink and, and find enjoyment in our labors and, and in its fruit. I mean, choose to see the good in our circumstances, knowing again that God is in control and be grateful. Thanks for the stick, we might say. I was hoping for an earthworm or an inchworm, but I got a stick that looked like one. You know, be grateful. Choose to be grateful and enjoy God's good gifts of daily, everyday uh, provision. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for, uh, again, uh, as I've said, for the opportunity that we have to be together this morning. And, um, I just pray that you would pick up this word now that's gone out, that you would pick up um, in people's hearts and minds as they've read uh, from Ecclesiastes 2 this morning, as I've read it out loud, as I've spoken from it. You'd pick it up and you would use it according to your good designs to serve your people um, in the way that you know best. In Jesus' name, amen.